Hey there, I'm Steve Watson, and I am proud to be a friend of River Church. It's good to be coming with you by video today. I've spoken uh, with you in person in Manhattan many times over the past several years, and my friend Charles assures me that as things uh, restart to reopen up again, he'll be inviting me back, which I very much uh, look forward to uh, whenever that time comes. I'm the senior pastor of Reservoir Church in Cambridge, Massachusetts. We have a long relationship with River Church. Uh, Charles uh, Park first had the idea to uh, start a church that became River Church in New York City while he was a graduate student here in Cambridge and while he was first becoming a pastor here in, in our church. Actually, Charles left Cambridge for New York just before we uh, moved into the sanctuary that I'm sitting in right now. But Charles tells me that one of his contributions toward the team as they were uh, planning the purchase and renovation was that uh, Charles uh, helped, maybe he led the group that selected the movable chairs we use in our sanctuary. These fine uh, purple models, one of which I'm sitting on today. So Charles, uh, still sitting upon your shoulders, so to speak, here in Cambridge. Glad to be in connection between our two churches still, and uh, glad to be with you all uh, at the river today. Uh, Charles mentioned uh, that he'll be doing some preaching or uh, perhaps River spending some time in the books of Joshua and Judges uh, this spring or summer. And uh, let me know when he invited me to uh, speak to you via video today that if I had anything I wanted to say from Joshua or Judges, that would be especially great. I thought for about half a second and said, no, I'm not, <laughs> uh, not feeling it. I'm sure you will uh, have some wonderful experiences uh, in these uh, two books, um, but they are not my particular favorite. So I thought instead I would speak to you from the book that immediately follows the book of Judges, a much smaller, a kinder, gentler, more beautiful story of Ruth, um, which is what I'd like to uh, share some uh, thoughts from today. I've got a classic kind of three-part title for this message. I've called it How to Read the Bible, Be a Righteously Awesome Person, and Listen to the Spirit. Those sound like three different things, but in the case of Ruth, uh, they're all uh, interconnected, and I'm looking forward to share those things with you now. So first off, um, this little book of Ruth, it pushes creative tension into the Old Testament's account of what to do with law and what to do with really relationships as well. See, in the Torah, the first five books of the Bible called the law, there's this bit of boundary marking about who can or can't be at worship in the temple. Also, like who can and can't be a full-fledged member of your community. And in the 23rd chapter of Deuteronomy, after the requisite comments about crushed testicles and other issues, I kid you not, we get this. Ammonites and Moabites can't belong to the Lord's assembly. Not even the 10th generation of such people can belong to the Lord's assembly as a rule because they didn't help you with food or water on your journey out of Egypt. Now, this is, of course, some serious shade casting on other ethnic groups. It sounds like someone's grinding an axe here, and they are. Now, these two ancient nation states didn't help us out, it's said, so they're never welcome in our house, and we'll be tracking lineage, lineage 10 generations deep. That's extreme. 
But this thing with the Moabites, it doesn't go away. In the books of Ezra and Nehemiah, Israelite men who marry Moabite women are publicly shamed and committed to divorce their wives. There are beatings and brawls over this thing. The strand of tension in the Bible reminds us that long-standing conflicts with near neighbors do not heal easily or quickly. Time does not heal all wounds. The pain and bitterness and grudges and inequities and perpetuation of harm that flow from injustice can keep on cursing down to the 10th generation and more. You think of perhaps Israel and Palestine and what's happening this spring, or we think of race relations in this country and race-based violence as we remember the murder of George Floyd one year ago. We don't even need to think of this, though, just in terms of national and world events, but even in terms of the grudges we keep and are kept against us in personal relationships. I know a thing or two about grudges, how to keep one, unfortunately. There was this time when I wouldn't speak to one of my grandmas for years because she had told me to shut up, which isn't a nice thing to say to your grandchild, but I had a really hard time letting that go. I know a thing or two about how to have grudges kept against you. I'm not going to tell those stories today, but I've had a couple people resent me longer and harder than I think I deserved. Perhaps you have as well. This kind of thing shows up in my family history too, perhaps yours as well. I know a story about uh, twin siblings who didn't speak for decades, decades after a falling out over what was honestly a very small inheritance. It's hard to let conflicts and grudges go, no matter how big or small they are. One way out of this resentment and conflict, and when it comes to the sort of big grudges and conflicts of the earth, one way out of this plague of memory and resentment is separation, exclusion, and barriers. Torah prescribes this for the Moabites, delineating who's right, who's wrong, and how to achieve safety and justice. We too, we can ghost people we can't stand anymore. But if we do that, if we pile up disconnection after disconnection, uh, the bitterness and separation and hurt that yields can be really painful for people, for families, sometimes for whole cultures and nations. Into this ancient grudge in the scripture, we get the book of Ruth, which is a celebration of intermarriage between Jewish men and the most remarkable Moabite woman, one of whom becomes the great-grandmother of the greatest ever king of Israel. This tells us a few things, right? It tells us that tensions in Scripture are normal. The fact that the Bible can say two or three or four even opposing things it doesn't mean that the Bible is like wrong or flawed. It means its editors trusted faith communities enough to discern truth within a real, gritty, complicated historical record. Because what is history and life if not gritty, real, and complicated? So the editors of the Bible didn't tie up all the loose ends to cut out the awkward or tricky parts and sort of, you know, edit it all into one never contradicting, neat flow. They trust us too much for that. They trust us enough to keep it real. Trust us to discern truth in a complicated document. And I like to think that whatever all the Spirit of God had 
in helping breathe the Bible into being. The Spirit of God trusts us enough as well to take four different Gospels, four different stories of the life of Jesus, and help us together discern a picture of this most beautiful human life in whom God is fully incarnate. And the Spirit of God trusts us to take a long, complicated, messy, and sometimes contradictory Bible and discern truth within it and have it help us see the way toward Jesus, see the way toward God, and see the way toward life abundant. The story of Ruth also tells us that where purity and exclusion look like good paths in relationships or cultures or companies or churches or anything, inclusion and healing are always a much better and a much wiser path. The Spirit of God tells us that in matters of law and morality and ethical matters, they need to be worked out, not just with principles in mind, not just abstractly, but in real earthy detail, humanely, with specific people and places in mind. This is true when it comes to border policies and policing. It's true when it comes to things like family rules and company policies and practices and old grudges and hard relationships as well. How do we do right by people? How do we heal wounds? How do we achieve justice in any setting? Well, we need law and principles, but we can't only follow them in the abstract. We have to love and honor the real people and situations in front of us that we're dealing with today. Asking what do dignity and love and justice and healing look like on the ground? The Irish uh, poet and theologian Padre Gotuma has a whole book out about this, if you're interested. It's called Borders and Belonging. You can check it out if this kind of thing seems important to you. I want to tell you now, though, about the two main characters of Ruth. Two remarkable people who show us something about how to be righteously awesome people ourselves. People who change generational patterns in our families. People who live and love boldly and who write redemptive stories that do good for generations. Uh, first, there's Ruth. Ruth is a Moabite woman whose Jewish husband has died young, leaving her a single widow. She lives with her mother-in-law, an older Jewish woman, middle-aged Jewish woman probably, whose husband has also died. A famine has set in, tanking the local economy, and these two women, already destitute, now risk starvation. Naomi, the mother-in-law, proposes that they part ways, each return to their families and cultures of origin as beggars, and see if they can rebuild their lives. But Ruth is not having it. She says, no way. We are family now. My life is bound to yours. Let's do this together. We get this in the text, which says, but Ruth replied, don't urge me to abandon you, to turn back from following after you. Wherever you go, I will go, and wherever you stay, I will stay. Your people will be my people, and your God will be my God. Wherever you die, I will die, and there I will be buried. May the Lord do this to me, and more if even death separates me from you. And when Naomi saw that Ruth was determined to go with her, she stopped speaking to her about it. Man. Ruth is an impressive woman. Ruth is the woman who helps care for her in-laws, even though they're not her parents. Ruth's the busy woman who makes time to visit her parents and you know, sing through the window while they're in lockdown during COVID. She's the loyal friend, the loyal spouse who hangs in through sickness, mental illness, turns of fortune. 
Ruth is this paragon of love to the degree that her words sometimes get used as wedding vows. And as the book continues, she'll also become a paragon of courage and boldness in different ways as well. She, a Moabite, is the rare woman in the Israelite scriptures who gets called an eschet hail, a woman of valor. It's like the highest compliment you can give a woman in this tradition. This phrase, Eset Hayel, woman of valor, is one that the late writer Rachel Held Evans liked to talk about and write about. It comes from the final chapter of the book of Proverbs, where wisdom is personified as a woman of extraordinary character and contributions, who is known as an Eset Hayel, a woman of valor. And Evans would talk about how Christians would often use this text to tell women what kind of people to be. Christians, often men, would tell women to be perfectly loyal and submissive and dutiful wives and mothers who never cease in their caregiving. And, and then also on top of that, to be productive contributors to the household and the community, a hundred other ways, always giving, always loving, always carrying the load, carrying things with a smile on their face too. And Evans would be like, this is wrong. All this telling what women should be raising the expectations toward perfection, right? Because Jews actually never use the text this way. For Jews and for the original context of the Hebrew scriptures, this phrase, eset ha'il, woman of valor, is there to celebrate the presence and love and labor of women in whatever form they've been these things already. Not to tell them to be better or to do more, but to honor who they have been. I think of my grandmother, not the one who told me to shut up, the other one. You know, she was a woman of her uh, generation, uh, but I remember late in her life when I was a, a kid and a teenager, uh, she had this very kind of uh, loud and somewhat dominating husband who was a sort of patriarchal and, you know, wonderfully so, but patriarchal figure in her family, got all the attention. But my grandma, my nana, always there for me as a kind of kind, accepting, loving presence when I needed that most. I thought, my my grandma, I praise her as in her own way, a woman of valor. I think of my wife. I think of both of the years in which she birthed and nursed and cared for our three children born less than five years apart, but also for her labor as a counselor and program director and her work helping poor residents of our community access jobs and workforce training when she was so often unseen or underappreciated in that work as social workers and counselors and people in the helping profession so often are. Or I think of now how she's serving in all kinds of volunteer civic capacities as well in the service of being a strong Asian American voice for anti-racism, which she is. And I think of her as being someone who's married to someone who's a little bit more of a public profile. I think, oh, my wife Grace is not always seen and praised as she deserves. Man, she too is a woman of valor. I could go on and on with examples, personal and historical, but women who are listening, I expect that you have love and labor in your life that has not been adequately seen, recognized, or compensated before. And I want you to know that God sees and honors you, women of valor. And men who are listening, you likely have women in your life whose love and labor has not been adequately compensated, recognized, and honored. Be a voice. I invite us who sees and honors and thanks and appreciates and professionally who adequately pays women 
of valor, be it in our family, friendships, or in public life. Ruth, though it can be read as a feminist text of this Eset Hayil, this woman of valor, it also gives us a Gibor Hayil, a man of valor. His name is Boaz. Boaz is a Jewish landowner and a distant cousin of Ruth's mother-in-law, Naomi. When Naomi and Ruth return to Israel, Naomi sends Ruth to glean in Boaz's fields to pick the extra harvest that Jewish law prescribed landowners to leave behind for those who had nothing. It's a practice of beloved community that was baked into the law that people with access to capital ought to recognize their privilege and good fortune and make sure that it benefits those people without capital as well. It's like a business's obligations, not just to its profits and customers, but to the broader community, to the land, to the native peoples of the land on which that business operates. Anyway, Boaz meets Ruth and doesn't just encourage her to keep gleaning in his fields. He goes out of his way to ensure that she is protected against any possible sexual harassment in the workplace and that she is empowered to thrive. Here's one bit from Boaz. Boaz, uh, this is the second chapter of Ruth. Boaz said to Ruth, haven't you understood, my daughter? Don't go glean in another field. Don't go anywhere else. Instead, stay here with my young woman. Keep your eyes on the field that they are harvesting and go along after them. I've ordered the young men not to assault you. Whenever you are thirsty, go to the jugs and drink from what the young men has filled. Now, the language is lifted out of the ancient times of the story, but Boaz emerges in his context as what um, uh, a writer I like, Richard Beck, calls a man of valor, a gibor hail. And it's cool that what makes a man of valor here is not wealth or power or skill in war or any other ancient patriarchal archetypes. What makes a man of valor in Ruth is doing the right thing with your privilege. It's generous and fair labor practice. It's just and kind and appropriate relationship with women. It's a great vision of masculinity. It doesn't celebrate the military valor, or as that phrase, man of valor, does later in the life of David. It doesn't celebrate wealth and privilege either, though Boaz has both. But it celebrates that one who, if they have those things, is just, gentle, and kind with whatever they have. So how do Ruth and Boaz get that way? How do they become these righteously awesome people who shape great futures for themselves and their communities? They're not heroes. They're not born great above and beyond the rest of us. That kind of fixed mindset that says to us, well, these people are really kind of impressive, uh, good people in life. And then there's, there's just the rest of us. That mindset doesn't serve us at all. Ruth and Boaz, rather, are portraits of ordinary people who respond to hard times with creativity and love, noticing the possibilities that God plants within them. And I want to close with just a few words on how they are listening to the Spirit lead them to whatever greater hope, joy, purpose, and creativity, and how that can be so for us as well. Ruth, again, is said in very hard times. In the Bible, it comes right after the book of Judges, which tells the story of a hot mess of just about every kind of suffering and violence known to our species. No one is living their best life or getting their dream job, married to their soulmate, or in any other way living the dream. The book of Ruth is all about people doing their best with their backup plans and sometimes with their backup plans to their backup plans and often with no plan at all. When times are hard, when 
plans are disrupted, when life isn't going how we hoped it would, what do we have? I'm sure that you, like me, have had many plans upended this past year. It's been really a very hard one. I mean, dang, over the past year, pretty much everything I was looking forward to and hoping for was lost or canceled. Maybe for you as well. It has just been really hard. But isn't that the case with a lot of life? Most of life calls less for plans and more for improvisation. Improv is how we relate to our friends and family after the mess explodes. It's improv is who we love and who we commit to and who we will do life with when, I don't know, not much else makes sense or when original hopes failed. Improv is how we'll treat our colleagues and our employees and the marginalized and discouraged in our communities when they're in chaos. It's our next move when it, wherever and whenever life has gone off course. I know I have less and less confidence in plans anymore and more and more in character, presence, faithfulness, and courage. Friends, God doesn't want your life going according to script. And God actually can't make your life go according to plan. That's not the kind of power that God has. What God can do, though, is be with you with perspective, peace, and love wherever you are today or any day. And God can encourage you that if you seek to be a person of character, a person of valor like Ruth or Boaz, a decent, safe, loving person who commits to the kindest, most loving options in front of you of life, God can help you keep becoming that kind of person. You see, I think Spirit of God is leading both Ruth and Boaz to their most beautiful redemptive possibilities. Both of them are improvising their way through strange and hard times, each at different moments, find themselves saying and doing brave and kind and good things that turn their lives toward the good, that open up good things in other people's lives too. And where do these ideas come from? How are these folks led to the words and actions that turn their lives toward the best possibilities? for them and for others around them. My understanding, and I believe the best understanding of the Christian faith is that these impulses, these ideas come from the Spirit of God who is near to us all and is inviting us every day toward the best, most creative, most loving possibilities for us and for the rest of the world around us. Our future is not pre-scripted by anyone, God included, but God is in relationship with everyone and everything that God has made, inviting us toward what's most creative, delightful, redemptive, and loving. God is doing this like pre-consciously, or what we call subconsciously, the great majority of the time too, right? We don't spend most of our lives um, consciously looking for a word from God, wondering what's God's best invitation moment to moment. But God is speaking to us even when we're not looking for it. God's Spirit is with us, inviting us, encouraging us, not toward some crazy ideal that's out of reach, but to the very best possibility we have in any situation. And so what do I do when I've been laid off, or when my loved one gets ill, when I've been done wrong by the last person I expected that to come from? What happens when my dreams for my kid die, or when I'm not where I want to be in life, or when I've been a jerk to the person I love, or when my mental health is tanked, or when I'm just having a bad day. None of these things, none of any of the things you're facing today are an out-of-reach, out-of-help place for the Spirit of God. 
Just as God is the wisest, most loving being in the universe, God is also the most creative and adaptive one. The one who's always got an inkling of a possibility for what's next. And if we really believe the Spirit is speaking, that notion is already kicking around your mind somewhere right now. Spirit of God is present to you. And Spirit of God has spoken. My church's Christian past in what was called the Vineyard Group of Charismatic or Renewalist churches, our shared church's past, was famous for calling out to God, come Holy Spirit, and expecting cool things to happen. But with all respect to that heritage, it's a weird prayer, as the Holy Spirit is already here. We celebrate instead that Spirit has come. So we can pray instead, Spirit, I am so glad you're here. Thank you, God, that you have decided to not be God without us. So God, what are you speaking? My God, what is your creative best that's available right now? And the Spirit of God will always lead us toward love, joy, and redemption. And will do so by nudging us, often beneath our consciousness, nudging us toward the most creative, beautiful next possibility. We're invited just to pay attention, to listen. Not necessarily to wait for something that seems mystical or religious to happen, but to trust that Spirit of God is with us and always inviting us toward God's most beautiful possibility given who we are and where we come from and where we are today. When life disappoints, when our plans are foiled, we're invited to take a deep breath by all means, feel whatever it is we have to feel. And then notice what's possible next. When we do that, when we look for and embrace the most beautiful, loving, redemptive possibility in front of us, however big or small that might be, and do that again and again and again, day after day after day, we too will be Eshet or Gibor Ha'il, people of valor. We too will have our beautiful place in God's redemptive story. And we too will know greater love and joy and significance than we thought possible. Friends, pray with me. Our good God, near and with us always by your spirit, speaking below our consciousness, inviting us toward the best possibilities not just for ourselves, but for whole communities and God, even I dare say for history. We pray that you would give us courage to believe that you're with us, that you give us grace to accept the state and condition of our lives today, that you give us hope to embrace the dance of improvisation that you call us to in life, and that you give us the attention to notice the next best possibilities in front of us this day and each day of our lives, that we could fully live the most beautiful stories that are possible for us, our friends, our family, our descendants, and for this good and beautiful earth in which we're so glad to be alive. We pray in the name of all that we consider holy, which for me is Jesus Christ. Amen. Good to be with you, River friends. I look forward to seeing you in New York at some point. Peace. Mm -hmm.